G'day folks, hope you can hear me. Uh, it's raining above me, which I'm sure you can hear. Uh, we are out, um, out on tour, and I have very little phone service. I'm hoping that I'll actually be able to upload this podcast. Um, anyway, I can't tell you what's happening around the place. Uh, I've done a podcast of this tour, so that'll come out uh, at some point. So I don't really have anything else to say except enjoy uh, the chat that I had with Rochelle and stay tuned for further updates. So Rochelle, welcome to The Birders Guide. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks, Michael. It's so good to be chatting with you. Now, I originally had you penciled in to come on the show, and which was why I got in touch in the first place, um, because I thought I saw your name on a paper about Western ground parrots. Incorrect, turns out. Turns out that uh, you haven't had anything to do with Western ground parrots, but here we are nonetheless. Um, Mm -mm. And so most of your formal research has been around birds and tourism, which is Mm -hmm. obviously something that I'm fairly interested in knowing about. And so we're going to talk about tourism, I guess, and as well as whatever else turns up. But uh, as such, this conversation will be probably a bit more free-flowing and... uh, organic than normal but fingers crossed we don't come across too many negative tourism things that means I have to get out of the business <laughs> <laughs> but we'll see where we end up so anyway firstly a little bit about yourself um you're currently based in WA have you been yep. there forever no no I haven't so I moved to WA in about March 2018 And no, so three years, I'd spent most of my adult life um, on the Gold Coast, actually. So grew up as a kid in Brisbane and then moved down to the Goldie in 2006 and then started my science degree, which then led into my PhD, which was on birds and bird tourism while I was living on the Gold Coast. And then Fast forward to 2017, I was very fortunate to secure a job with Richard Fuller at University of Queensland and he hired me as a postdoc to look at citizen science and community awareness for threatened species, which evolved into a project on the western ringtail possum. So birds and plants are definitely my jam, mammals not so much, but Nature and people are probably number one for me and uh, anything that can heighten the awareness of people when it comes to the environment that we share with so many other species is, is definitely where my heart is. So the Western ringtail possum occurs from south of Perth down the southwest corner of, of the continent and being a project around people and nature, it made sense to actually be here. So I picked myself up and moved across the continent at 36 years old. And, yeah, now I'm what they call a sand groper, which is just so weird. My heart still is in Queensland, but, yeah, so here I am. And I'm I'm now working for WWF Australia, actually. So I look look after uh, some species conservation projects that we have here now. So, yeah been an interesting journey yeah nice are you planning on staying in wa for a while 
well, you see this thing happened called COVID and a huge migration of, of people repatriating back to Australia resulted in what's going on in the property market. And so I was renting. There was the plan to move back to Queensland, but it just became untenable to stay renting. So I've just purchased a property here and it looks like I'll be here for a few more years. Uh, but my mum's still in Brisbane. My partner's mum's in Brisbane. So, yeah, eventually I think we'll find ourselves back in, in home home turf. So yep. I'm happy here at the moment. I still haven't ticked off the WA endemics yet, so I need to make the most of it while I'm here. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Now, how did we get onto that? We were talking, oh, I just asked if you'd been in WA your whole life. Yeah. Have you have you always been interested in nature in general, birds specifically? How did you how did you get into that? Mm. How did I end up doing a PhD on birds and tourism? So when I started my science degree, I had come from working in retail for 10 years. So I worked selling cosmetics and jewelry. Mm, there you go. Uh, so a complete different world. And I just, I realised that I had a contribution to make. I, I needed something that was a little bit more fulfilling and, and challenging as well. So I started studying science. And then in terms of how it came to birds was, I love frogs too, but wading through creeks in the rain at night time is really not my thing. <laughs> um, I have done a lot of work on, around native vegetation and plants. So that's also, I guess, another sort of side specialty. But birds I love because they're so easy to connect with. No matter where I am, I am birding. Mm-hmm. It's I am birding 24-7. I am very much an auditory birder. So I, I hear everything. I'm a klutz, so I can't look where I look for birds all the time otherwise I'll face plant especially in somewhere like a rainforest where there's Mm -hmm. tree roots everywhere so I've had to develop my call ID pretty well and I'm in a suburb just north of the Perth CBD I'm literally walking distance to the Perth CBD and on Thursday night I got so excited because I could hear a southern blue book calling outside so uh, I noticed the birds, how the, every place I've lived, I notice the bird sound changing around me and what species come and go depending on where I live. So I just, for some reason, birds are my passion and I just find them so interesting. Fairy wrens, oh, my goodness, the most promiscuous birds in the world. <laughs> What's not to love about that? <laughs> and, um, yeah, so I, I ended up doing the PhD with the tourism element because my amazing PhD supervisor, Guy Casley at Griffith Uni, he was sort of seconded to an ecotourism research centre at the time and I definitely wanted to work with him and it also sort of made sense to do something that was a bit multidisciplinary, combining my new sort of science foundation knowledge but also that previous world of customer service and dealing with people that I had through the sales and tourism just seemed like a, a neat intersection of those two things. Yeah. So, um, yeah, 
that's how that sort of came to be. We we set about doing something on birds and tourism. Yeah, sweet. Yeah. And so this is not being recorded as a video, so no one else watching this can um, see either see. of us. But I can I can see that birds are very important in your life. So you've got three <laughs> um, behind you. You've got a barn owl. Yep. What? I can't see it very well, but it looks like a snowy owl on one side. Yes. And they're a- snowies as well. So it's a Inuit painting from Canada. Oh, yeah. Yep. And the, the the photograph is also a snowy. Um, and that one was taken in Alberta in mm-hmm. the plainlands there. I it's not it's not that I particularly love owls, but I feel the need to <laughs> taxonomically arrange my artwork in my house. And so I have a fairy wren image as well, and I tend to put that next to one that um, Nicholas Rakatapare has taken of a spotted padlet. So I keep all my little guys together. And then there's a magpie over here because my partner loves them, a warbling of magpies. So my living room tends to be all bird pictures. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, yeah, so the owls behind me, um, I love owls. I just... Sooty Owl in North Queensland was probably the most emotional lifer for me. The first time I ever saw a sooty owl, I had a very big lump in my throat. I don't know why. Um, I just, yeah, it was pretty special. Yeah. Well, I think you're the first. I know lots of people who have um, bird artwork, but I think you're the first person I've met who has them taxonomically ordered. (laughs) (laughs) The scientist and, and I'm very methodical, precise. I like lists. Like things in boxes. Um, I'm a shocker. OCD. Yeah, and you also have some very nice uh, bee to earrings on. Yes, yeah. rainbow bee to earrings. Um, handmade in Brisbane by a lady whose her business is Luna Designs. So if any, I'm doing a shameless shout out for her. <laughs> uh, they are they are very nice. Coming from someone who doesn't wear earrings, they are very nice. They're, they're so cool and. I just couldn't believe when I saw the birds that she was making. So, yeah, rainbow beaders. I've never seen jewellery with a rainbow beater before. And what a marvellous bird to be able to have a pair of earrings spark a conversation about. Mm. Uh, You know, one of our most beautiful annual migrants to the southern latitudes, they have this really neat life history. They burrow into sandy hills and banks it's just a neat story and they sound like crickets when they're flying overhead. It's they're, they're a great conversation starter, but also, yeah, she does purple crown fairy wrens, oh, superb fairy wrens, rose robins. She's just got a red tail, yellow tail, black cockatoo. She just, it's really, really cool. So if there's uh, anybody in your life that might be partial <laughs> to some funky birds and they're super sparkly for those that can't see this, of course, they are super, super sparkly, so guaranteed to, to attract attention. So maybe we'll put a maybe we'll if you send me her a link, Instagram I'll put it in handle the, or something. Yeah, I'll put it in the in the show notes. My wife Brilliant. was just she's my wife saw some bird earrings. I don't think they would have been the same, but similar um, mm. on Facebook the other day, and said she would get some. And my wife is not mm. a birder, so yeah, I was like, yeah, get on it. No, exactly. And I challenge, I definitely challenge anybody that, that wears this to, if anybody comments on it, to start a conversation because 
that's what we need, really. We need more people talking about this stuff in the everyday. So, mm. yep. yeah. So, obviously, I think people have probably gathered that you quite like birds, which is good. That's <laughs> I might have got you on the show. For- <laughs> I might have got you on the show for the wrong reason, but you're the right person. So that's good. We'll roll awesome. with that. Now, before we get into um, research, are you still mm-hmm. working on ring-tailed possums currently? Is that still your focus? I'm not being paid to. <laughs> but uh, I guess the Western ring-tailed possum work for me now is a bit of a legacy project. So we as part of the research project that I was doing, we designed a citizen science app for monitoring western ring-tailed possums for your phone, your smart device. And the whole idea being that people would let us know when they see them in their backyard and what they're doing. And it's not just for ringies, it's for all possums and gliders in Australia, actually. So uh, I wasn't going to pay an app developing team to just do it for one species when, hey, why not do it for all 25 odd? So basically the lessons that we can learn about that are around what parts of the urban environment that possums use and also some of the conflict stuff. So what people might find annoying about having possums in their garden or dare I say in their roof. And, and so for that to really have any sort of lasting lessons to be learned, it's something I'm going to need to keep my hand on for a little while yet. It was never going to deliver maximum impact only on a year or two of of active sort of management so yeah so what are you getting what are you getting paid to do these days these days with uh so i work with wwf australia in based in perth and we have a few projects which are all mammal focused at the moment uh so we have projects on rush-tailed rock wallabies quokkas on the mainland which are our southern brown bandicoot and we've just been wrapping up some work on numbats actually so uh, all the furry critters uh, but I also do sort of collaborate and consult with bird life and some other advocacy bodies here in the southwest for carnabies and and other black cockatoos because um, there's some very strange things happening with black cockatoos here in the southwest and you know, they're relying on pine plantations now and we're clearing them and all of this sort of thing, which presents some interesting challenges for conservation. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. So moving on to your research, um, mm. specifically tourism, I don't know if you've done any research apart from tourism based, but um, tourism research, did you just do one um, one lot of study or did you do... Honours, masters, PhD. Yeah, okay, good question. So the the way that it went was, um, I did a bachelor of science. That was my foundation degree in ecology and conservation biology. So that was my major. Then at the end of that, I did a one year honours, which took it from the three year bachelor to a four year bachelor with honours. And that honours project looked at tourism as a threat to critically endangered and endangered birds and also tourism 
as a conservation tool for critically endangered endangered birds. So, and it was global. So it was desktop. I relied on information from the IUCN Red List about those globally threatened birds. And then also, for, for example, protected area agencies often have things like their annual reports freely available online where they have financial statements. And so using some of that information to extrapolate what role tourism plays in basically keeping those protected areas intact. Yep. And um, if that protects, let's say, for example, 50% of a protected, a particular protected area, its revenue comes from tourism, whether it be entry fees, food and beverage, retail sales, all of these things that can occur in some of these big protected areas. And that protected area, for example, may well hold 100% of the global population of a particular bird species. Well, 50% of that bird's population is essentially being funded by tourism. Okay, so keeping that protected area intact is very strongly dependent on those tourism dollars coming in. Yeah. So that was the positive side of it. The negative side of it was around the direct and indirect. So indirect being we've cut, we cut down habitat to build a resort um, and those sorts of things, but then direct, of course, human disturbance and trampling habitat and things like yep. that. So that was the honours project. So it was pretty cool because it was the double-edged sword approach. And then my PhD was drilling down deeper into specifically bird-focused tourism or aviturism and and its relationship with birds and conservation uh, and bird habitats. So, and it took, again, a bit of a multifaceted view. I asked, I did an online questionnaire where I asked birders what they thought about bird conservation, why they thought it was important. Uh, what sorts of places they go birding, how far from home they go birding and how often all that sort of sort of what's your birding profile and yep. way of thinking. But also um, I did some face-to-face -face questionnaires and experiments with people asking them to basically indicate or describe their ideal bird watching destination in terms of the birds that they see. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the tourism researchers had asked about, you know, how important is it that fine wine is available and how important is it that you have a five-star bed and hotel room? And that's not what I was interested in. I wanted to know, well, yeah, do you want diversity? Do you want endemism? Are you a last chance to see bird or chasing things that are about to go extinct? All of those, I was really more interested in the relationship with the birds and the habitats themselves. Yeah, and was that internationally focused as well or Australia? Yeah, it was definitely internationally focused. I, through the online questionnaire, I was fortunate to be able to sort of filter out to Pacific Island um, destinations and do a bit of a sub-study on the potential for aviturism in Pacific Islands uh, as an alternative economic activity, of course. I actually went to the UK to do a fair chunk of my face-to-face -face data collection to um, the bird fair in Rutland Water, so mm -hmm. which is in the, the Midlands in England and probably 
the single most amazing event I have ever been to. <laughs> have you been to the Virgo? No, I haven't. No, I haven't. Probably haven't been able to because you said earlier that you'd only started really guarding in 2019 and then, of course, COVID hit. They've had to cancel the last two. Yeah. So, Peter, so, if you're uh, listening, my boss, Rochelle says I need to go. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I've met Peter at the first one that I went to. Oh, yeah. I was going to say Peter has been to, I think, well, he's been to a lot. So, yeah. Yeah. So a lot of your colleagues in the industry, I was very fortunate to rub shoulders with and spend quite a big time, bit of time chinwagging with them on the Aussie stands. Yep. And it's just brilliant. You know, I've never been, I never thought I could find so much joy being surrounded by people dressed in khaki. <laughs> <laughs> Sporting Swarovskis is the ultimate fashion accessory. Yep, yep, so, yep. yeah, no, it was cool. So definitely the, the work had um, global relevance, but also I really tried to tie it to some Australian um, context, particularly to share back to you know people like BirdLife Australia for them to understand where their opportunities are in terms of engaging with the, the birding population here in Australia. Yeah. So going back to your honours research, this is a yeah. question which I hope won't backfire on me. If it does, I'll just <laughs> edit it out and we'll pretend I never asked. <laughs> um, is tourism more of a threat or more of a tool for conservation? Yeah, it's a good question. And first of all, it, you need to embed it within the grand scheme of things that are threats to birds, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. So if we think about what the biggest threats to biodiversity are, birds are a part of that. Habitat loss and degradation is enemy number one, no matter where you are on this planet. So, yeah, if the choice is birding and potential negative effects of, of tourism associated with birding or even just independent operator sort of an independent bird is out chasing birds for themselves without yeah. a guide or anything like that. Mm. As opposed to the government saying, yep, no problem, let's sacrifice 25% of that national park for forestry or let's open up the half, half of this national park to four-wheel driving um, for sure, birding is, is nowhere, not a patch on, on that when it comes to negative impact. So I guess where the literature tends to caution around bird-focused tourism is things like if we know that there's a pair of a particularly rare species or a species that occurs at very um, low density, or is, is threatened because rare and threatened are not necessarily the same. Yep. But if any species that is some way predisposed to being in trouble or a challenge for conservation, I think that's where the effect, some of the effects of birding practices can have an amplified effect because that bird or that species is already a little bit prone to being being deleteriously affected or so yeah hammering hammering the same pair of rare birds with call playback um is is definitely something that i i tend to take i would take the precautionary principle approach to 
Mm-hmm. But you know, if I if I'm pretty sure that there's a a pair of splendid fairy wrens in that bush, and I would just like to be able to see that male, then I am I'm as guilty as pishing to get that little fella to come out and say hello as yeah. anybody. So. Yeah. But, you know, we're talking about a bird that occurs at pretty high densities across a very large part of this continent. So in the scheme of things, a low impact. So I think it all needs to be assessed in the context of what else is going on in that landscape. What else does that species have to confront to do what it needs to do to survive and reproduce? Mm. Um, Yeah, so... I don't like to see, put it this way, I, I tend to be a little bit funny if I see birds or photos of birds, for example, that are clearly agitated. Yeah. That, ten, that tends to make me a little bit annoyed. So <laughs> I would, I, um, I don't like to see that. So Yeah. yeah. So what's, I guess, what's the main thing? Okay, so you talked about funding, as in um, the money that tourists spend while out burning yeah is there anything else in particular that you came across that is useful for conservation efforts that birders do oh well look that birders do or Or can do do. yeah exactly so i think what birders do here in australia there's a lot of opportunity to really start to underline the value of birding to our economy, local communities. So something that I've seen overseas, which I think is brilliant, and I have, I've sort of suggested it, I don't know how many times at various bird meetings and things like that. So I've seen calling cards that birders can leave. So you go... And this happens, this is uh, replicated across Australia every week. A birding group gets together and goes out birding for the morning. They then go to a cafe, maybe local cafe nearby or maybe even a pub for lunch, um, sit around, chat about the bird, the birding of the morning, potentially go through the list of birds that they've seen in the process, purchase their coffee and cake or lunch and then and then head off. Now, in some places around the world, those sorts of groups will go to the owner or manager of that establishment and give them a card that says, we have been, we came here today because we have been watching birds in the local habitat um, and we hope you know that conservation of that habitat is good for your business. And so these calling cards to really make it abundantly clear to some of these communities the potential value that people coming into their patch to watch birds means to them and can mean to them. And it's it's really hard to measure the economic value of birding. It's it's very difficult to measure. It's not like whale watching. We know how many boats go out. We know how many people fit on a boat. It's not rocket science to work out how much whale watching's worth. But to work out the value of birding as an activity that creates interest and economic benefit, it's much harder. So I think anything that makes it a part of the vernacular makes people aware that it's even a thing, that, you know, people can get around with binoculars and not be social deviants. (laughs) So... (laughs) 
It's absolutely something that is so foreign here. It's not overseas. In the UK and in the US, people know what birding, what bird watching is. It is yeah. not completely foreign. When I say to people I'm going bird watching, they invariably think I'm going to creep on other women. <laughs> and, <laughs> yep, that's and, the general um, comment. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So uh, it's there's a lot of a lot of work to be done to to make it more common knowledge here and I think that's where that familiarity builds an understanding well that's we need habitats for that to be able to happen yeah we don't watch birds in cages mm. really yeah so you were saying that it's difficult to um, quantify the financial benefit of birding mm. one of my questions that I've very quickly jotted down here earlier was how many birding tourist dollars come into Australia? <laughs> so is there is there any sort of any sort of figure, however rough, or just is it just too difficult to quantify? Uh, I don't know the numbers of people that come in for birding. So what we, what would be awesome though is it wouldn't it wouldn't be hard to track down all of the birding tour companies in Australia that operate within Australia, right? You and I right now could come up with a dozen names of people that we, we know could probably, are in We the could bins. probably come up with 80% of them probably. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, the challenge is then to uh, motivate some altruism among everybody <laughs> uh, in that they could divulge even if it was just... Uh, how many people they their services are engaged for in a year. And we could guesstimate an average daily spend pretty easily for most tourists that engage guiding services. And so you would be able to then sort of work out a rough annual value. And that would just be for those ones that are actually paying for guides. Mm. The ones that come here and uh, and Australia, because it is so safe, it's an English-speaking country and our obviously some of our biggest source markets are the US and the UK, it is pretty easy for an overseas birder to come to Australia and go about their birding trip on their own. There be those species that are particularly cryptic or hard to tick that they really, the money invested in a guide would probably be worth it if they were super, super keen to tick those species. But that's mm. not all birders. There are a lot of birders that would be would be more than happy just to come and see the, the number of Australian endemics that they would, let yeah. alone the really hard ones. Um, and to be honest, that's where I think the bulk of the market is and it's it would be harder to measure if they're not engaging services from a guide but I think yeah it would it would be well I when I was in the UK at the bird fair and I was doing some some surveys for the North Queensland operators I think most UK birders coming to Australia were coming for eight to twelve weeks so that's a that's a lot of money that is a lot of money that is what most people put as a deposit on a house these days. Mm. So, and, you know, a lot of that being accommodation, food and beverage, that stays in Australia. 
that money. So some of the other source markets that are coming over for other things, whether how much of that stays in Australia, I don't know if they're photography eccentric tours, for example, that are, yeah. So it would vary a little bit depending on where the people are coming from and who whose services they're engaging. But um, I think for, for those, the ones that we would expect from the UK and the US, that's a pretty significant investment into the local economy that we're talking mm. purely because the time that they spend here dictates that there's a fair bit of money being invested. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, something to research one day. <laughs> Stay tuned. Yeah. Stay tuned. It's something I'm hoping to be looking a bit more into in the not-too-distant future, so... Yeah. yeah, sweet. I, I, I don't even know how long ago this was. A long time. Probably, how old am I now? Probably more than ten years ago. Ten or twelve years ago, I was. I'd, I'd tried to put something together about the dollars of birding that came into Australia, but I wasn't like I wasn't at uni or anything, so I didn't have any. Yeah. Everyone, everybody, basically said if you can give us the university that you work for or the the study that you're trying to do, happy mm. to help out. But I wasn't, ah, so fair enough. That's interesting. Yeah. So. That's really interesting. Yeah, I think one of the things that would be super useful, which is something I know a lot of the operators had when I went, when I was involved, when I was doing my PhD, they were really trying hard to get Tourism Research Australia to include bird watching on the exit surveys at the airports. Oh yeah. So we as I said, they have whale watching on these surveys, which they could work out. They don't even need to ask the tourists to know that. Um, because realistically you can't go whale watching unless you get on a commercial boat operation. <laughs> it's just it's mad. Um, and they have, I think they might have wildlife watching and going to a zoo or going bushwalk. Like there's this list, long list of activities. I don't know why it's so hard to include bird watching as an activity on this list. And straight away we would have a statistically representative percentage of the tourism population that engages in birding whether it be with a guide or independent um, and to be able to have just those sorts of numbers and then have an average daily spend, bam, we'd have our, our value right there. So Mm. it would be, it'd be super useful. And it's, it's still, again, something that I am fully supportive of and yeah, more hours in the day for me to harass the government to, to do something like that would be good. Yeah. Yeah. So, Obviously, obviously, during the last 12, 12, 14 months or so with COVID, um, we haven't had any international yeah. t- tourist people, anybody, mm. even some Australians mm. haven't come back yet. Um, yeah. What's the, do you have any thoughts or have you done, have you looked into anything around the birding tourism industry during COVID or what it will be like post-COVID? I haven't looked into it for Australia. Uh, There is already some papers and research that's being done 
to try and gauge or assess the risk that a lack of global tourism may pose to biodiversity. And that, I guess, is more relevant for those places where we have high conservation value destinations that are extremely dependent on tourism. And so I'm thinking places like Botswana, um, you know, a lot of the places that without that tourism income, there is little incentive to conserve biodiversity where yeah. uh, those, those resources would be otherwise used, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So whether that be the landscape scale or the species scale. So there's definitely some work at the very least speculative musings around what does this mean for some of these species that nobody is paying to see at the moment and how is that going to affect their conservation longer term so it's that's an issue overseas here in Australia to be honest uh, this is this is the risk that we have having not invested enough in engaging the general populace in nature appreciation. And I think that the general population here has always been aware that the Australian landscape is something special. Mm. Uh, I want to see Uluru. I want to see the Bungle Bungles. I want to see the Great Barrier Reef. Um, But whether they have thought to themselves, I want to see the Southern Cassowary as a part of a wet tropics experience. I want to see um, the migratory shorebirds in Broome over the summer. You know, I don't think that there was enough awareness for people to really think about, right, well, I can't travel overseas. I can't go to New Guinea and see birds of paradise at the moment. So I'm going to go to North Queensland and see the rifle birds in North Queensland. Or I think that the birding tour, the people that are already kind of keen on birds would have already been thinking, all right, well, I might as well go and tick the last of the Australian endemics that I haven't been able to tick yet because I've been prioritising overseas trips because it was just better value. Um, But I think that more general tourism trying to bring people into birding I think yeah we if we'd had a little bit more nature connectedness in the general population then I think yeah we'd Mm. be in a a much more robust situation with with our tourism but having said that domestic tourism is doing very very well so birding may or may not be growing as a part of that industry but um, what do you, how is how has it been for you the last twelve months? Has it been busy? Have you? Well, twenty uh, twenty was a complete non-event, um, but that's because all the restrictions we couldn't go anywhere ourselves. Yeah. Um, but this year, this year I don't know exactly, but would have to be one of our biggest years in a long time. Whether that carries over to next year or whether just everybody. Um, locally is just getting in this year and getting it done. Um, we'll see. 
depends on yeah. whether the borders open or not, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But I was, I think, very similarly to you in terms of just increasing the general population's knowledge of nature, not even necessarily birds, but just nature. I was talking with one of my friends who is the PE and outdoor ed teacher of the local school. And I said, look, is there, you know, maybe we could do a a birding intensive at one day or two days, just a term or a semester. It doesn't have to be a whole subject, but just I'm pretty sure I can sell birds for, for six hours to some year 11 kids. Well, I'll give it a go anyway. (laughs) So, you know, I think there's a lot of stuff that can be done. I I thought of that actually, because I listened to a podcast um, from the ABA, the American Birding Association of a guy who uh, started teaching birding at school, at high school. Mm. And I was like, that's probably something we could do here. But yeah, I think I agree that generally speaking, we are not very good at just getting across nature. Mm. I've, I was talking to one of my friends and I was talking about the tour that I was about to go on last week or the week before. And she said, but you're just going to look at it. Like you're not even going to shoot it. You just, <laughs> <laughs> she's like, oh my God. she's like, why would you go all that way if you weren't even going to kill it? I was like, just to look at it and she's like what's the point of just looking at something (laughs) so anyway wow that's probably not a very good advertisement for how good I am at getting across the love of nature but But I would have I guess you know what would have been interesting I would have said would you go to Africa to shoot a cheetah well they do have a giant kudu head hanging on their wall that he shot in Africa <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So anyway, they're probably yes. the hunt the hunting tourists. Yes, but, yes. But even so, I don't have what say probably out of my top ten or fifteen best friends, I guess. I don't have anybody who doesn't at least make a little bit of fun of me whenever we talk about birding. It's all you know, it's just it's all jokes and I mean that's I can take it, that's fine, but it would be nice if they could, you know, learn to appreciate just nature, just walk around and just appreciate the mm. the beauty of it all. But anyway, exactly, exactly. I don't, I don't know and where I think, we, how we achieve that. Well, I think you have to find the hooks. You have to, and this is something that why I wear these earrings, and um, I just. I guess it's so much a part of my everyday venture. The, the second I my feet hit the ground when I get out of bed, I am looking for that opportunity to engage with someone. And I guess this is where the salesperson in me is still very much in my mentality because I'm still selling. It's just that now I'm selling nature. <laughs> yeah. I'm selling conservation and awareness of nature. So... I guess I just look for any little possible way to hook and create a conversation. And I think that that's something that for BirdLife, one of the reasons why I do volunteer with BirdLife is because I love outreach and 
I don't, I'm not, I don't do it with little kids. That's not my jam. I am, uh, I sort of have a very bad habit of always ending up on the dirt track and nature lends itself very well <laughs> to that. And it's a great, uh, a great way to talk about nature to adults. And that's where we need a huge shift in the way that we think about nature. So I do talk about promiscuity and fairy rents. I talk about what happens to all the male antichinus and quolls after breeding season and that if you look closely, they're all smiling even though they're dead. And why <laughs> is that? <laughs> because they've literally just done it to death. And this is the this is the message, this is what the conversations are that need to happen to I think create interest and mm. Um, and so I'm always looking for those little opportunities and, and a conversation, whether it be with your friends and, hey, if you end up the butt of their jokes in the, in the interim, same with me. I mean, I don't care if people think that I've got a screw loose upstairs <laughs> because if you tell them about a wasp mating with an orchid and they think that you're nuts, that's fine, but they will never unlearn that fun fact. Yeah. Um, and so I, I definitely, it's a part of my every day and I guess I challenge when I go to unis and I'm speaking to other conservation students or I go to a bird life event where there, it's a room full of birders and I go, it's great that you go out and you watch birds and you make your list and you put it on bird data. That's wonderful. But I also want you to, next time you're having a cup of tea with that friend that's not a birder, have that conversation just tell them something cool tell them something interesting start a conversation and golly you and I Michael we've burned an hour mm. so easily just talking spitballing about birds yeah I was I was just thinking we're gonna have to we're gonna have to shut this up soon which sucks and maybe we'll just have to do another one <laughs> it's but it's this but hey this is but that's what I'm saying though it's cool and yeah mm. we're both we're both converts, so fair enough. We're, we're kind of preaching to the converted to each other kind of thing. But I think that in there there's that, that golden thread and that is this, you can have these little conversations with anybody. It's just looking for that little opportunity, that little thread to tug. Yep. And as soon as you find that and you, oh, you can win people over, you really, yeah. really, I see it. I see it. I do it all the time. It's what I live, eat, breathe for, to be yeah. honest. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, one question around citizen science. So mm -hmm. I personally, I use eBird a lot just because it helps me keep track of all my stuff that Your I've seen. Your list? Yes. Yeah. One of them all eBird's very good because it keeps track of all of your lists, not yeah, just the yeah. one. Yeah, you're not the only one. It's brilliant. It's a brilliant cataloging system for any birder. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of, I don't, I don't know whether this has any relevance to tourism perhaps, or definitely conservation, but not maybe not tourism. But what do you see citizen science, good, bad, useful, unuseful? Absolutely useful. And it all depends on the question and the scale uh, as to what type of citizen science can deliver the best outcomes for biodiversity. So, you know, the incidental sightings system is great over you know, long time periods and 
large spatial scales. Um, to answer questions that are, are more directed or pointed in their relevance for a particular location or a particular point in time, yeah, then we need to have more structured, robust methods. So transects and timed counts and, and area searches and this kind of thing. So all citizen science has its place and really how, what questions you want to answer um, will, will dictate what type of citizen science can deliver. And it's interesting what you say about the tourism. So I actually think that a tour guide it's another feather in the cap that you could be offering as a part of a tourism experience, dependent on the client, of course, but they're because if they just want to get in and get those species as quickly as possible and then get out, then that's one thing. But I guess I would also be seeing it as a very tangible, demonstratable activity to say, how you're delivering, for example, on the principles of ecotourism and, um, and sustainable tourism. So if you do keep a list, you, you have your, your clients keep a list that then is shared back to whichever database it is, if it's bird data, if it's eBird, if it's iNaturalist, anything. Um, it's another thing to be able to say your tourism, you know, your, your tourism experience or your paying for not only this experience, but you're contributing to something bigger. And I think that that's a, for me as a paying customer, that would be a selling point that I would be attracted to. I would want to think that that time I've spent out in the field looking for the birds would also have a, a flow on effect to a broader benefit for yeah. sure. Yeah. So yeah, keep a list and yeah. log it somewhere. <laughs> Here's a question that you may you may know the answer to in terms of, cause you've got, you've got eBird, you've got bird data. Um, does the, does the Australian bird Atlas, is that still a thing or is that bird data? Okay. So, I anyway, think they... so while, while you're thinking the question is, yeah. is there a specific um, online portal that Australian scientists utilize more than another? That's the question. Like, would you be better putting your data on bird data or eBird in terms of Australian conservation? Uh, uh, hmm. Okay. So I know, I know of researchers that have used eBird data to write papers, scientific papers about Australian birds. Okay. Without a doubt. Um, bird data... So BirdLife Australia's data set, the Atlas, the Australian Bird Atlas is, is basically what bird data is now. So bird, the Atlas was always based on certain methodologies that now bird data also uses and bird data feeds into the Atlas. And definitely uh, the Atlas has been very useful in tracking trends in Australian birds. So the state of Australia's birds reports are done based on Atlas data, which is what bird data now feeds into. Uh, and then the Atlas of Living Australia, which is I think the one that you meant before yeah, is the Australian yep. government. Yep, so ALA. Now that all, I'm pretty sure, iNaturalist feeds into ALA. Okay. Uh, I think that 
BirdLife and eBird also do share their data to the ALA. So, and it then from the ALA goes to GBIF, Global Biodiversity Inventory Facility, I think that stands for. So uh, it goes up the chain even further to track global trends, which are things like our migratory shorebirds in the East Asian Australasian Flyway, obviously super important because they their life history takes place over a huge scale way outside of Australia. So the the bigger the benefit, um, the better as well. So you want it to be, we just want it to be everywhere, basically. We yeah. want so much data everywhere so that we can always find information to say why we shouldn't be destroying bird habitat, basically. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So it shouldn't be kept a secret. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got two more questions to everyone listening who's like, oh, my God, hurry up and finish. Two more questions. Um, the first one is, and um, you mentioned this in one of the emails that we sent back and forwards to each other. So grey nomads and citizen science, you've got mm. a whole bunch of people who quite often are interested in nature, who are going quite often to places that are, you know, not necessarily the most visited places in Australia. Yep, yep. How... You've also got a generation without being ageist <laughs> who are perhaps yeah. not the most technologically inclined. Mm. Any uh, any tips on how yeah. or just or just get to know your phone or your tablet? So funny thing. So my dad falls into that category. <laughs> and for me, the challenge would be sparking the interest not so much the technological side of it. So actually, I think a lot of them now are pretty savvy on, at the very least, a tablet. Mm-hmm. And they're on, they have these um, forums that they all are on to find out about free camping spots and where can I get water and where can I have a shower and all of that, there is a community there that are communicating with each other using technology. How do we infiltrate that community? How do we, how do we, yeah, use, use that existing channel and that existing will to use technology and get them thinking about birds and what they're seeing and capturing what they're seeing when they're there because as you said golly there are a lot of grid cells on that map that are empty at the moment that are that are missing values and unfortunately in we get all too often decision makers treat missing values as zeros and that is a huge mistake because a zero is I've looked and there weren't any a missing value is we just don't know because we haven't looked yeah. And we need we need to have we need to replace those missing values with a number, whatever that is. And I think definitely the grey nomad population, that is a huge opportunity to start to map the biodiversity if if nothing else as far as birds goes on this continent, because yeah, and they're out in force now more than ever. Mm. Yeah. So it's a huge opportunity. So I think 
whoever we all know if we if we want this in in the birding community we need to think about who we already know that are grey nomads and start weaseling our way into understanding how they communicate what are their day-to-day -day, um, engagements with technology and how do we integrate birding into that existing framework yeah yeah sweet another thing to work on yeah. <laughs> so last question and I ask this to everybody. I didn't uh, tell you in an email that I was going to ask this, but you said you've listened to at least one episode, so you might know that this question's coming. Um, of all the places in Australia that you've been birding, mm -hmm. where is one place that you think everybody needs to go at least once? The thing is, is that some of this has a bit of human overtone to it because of who I was with at these places too and, and the some of the first things I saw were at these places. So Lake Eacham in North Queensland. Yep, yep. Which is often pretty busy on the weekend with people because it's such a sweet spot to go swimming in the tropics. But I had just about at eye-level views of big parrots in the figs around Lake Eacham and also rifle, beautiful rifle bird views. Uh, so, yeah, probably Lake Eacham and then the other one would be Fog Dam mm -hmm. in the Northern Territory. Yeah. Uh, and I was lucky because I got to spend more than a week there in my camper van um, and I saw my first rainbow pitta there. Yep. And just, oh, it was just mag a magic place to get up at dawn and have see the bearders sitting on branches, warming up. And it was just such, I actually loved Fog Dam more than Kakadu. So personally, I've, yeah. I've just found it such a special, special place. And, um, yeah, so Lake Eacham and Fog Dam, they're my two top places. I, I met Mike Davis at Fog Dam too. So, <laughs> and he's he's like the Sean Connery of, of the bird guide world, I have to say. So mm. <laughs> <laughs> to anybody that has, listening that hasn't met him, he's an absolute gentleman. And, um, yeah, so very much so Fog Dam is, is pretty special. Well, thank you, Rochelle, for coming on and giving us an hour or so of your time. It's been a fantastic chat and awesome. uh, all the best with your continued work and conservation and trying to convince the population of the benefits of nature thank you thanks very much for having me and yeah maybe we we can chat again sometime that'd be great